Hey there, we're the Westlot Pirates and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Gentlemen. Um, <laughs> Hello. Yeah, buddy. Uh, that was awesome. Uh, before we talk about uh, Northwestern's amazing uh, display in the 43-3 to shellacking over Maryland, I uh, just want to say, you know, for everyone listening to us for the first time or uh, coming back to us after uh, the summer, welcome back. Welcome to the pod. Um, you know, we, we love that you're excited and you're listening to us. Um just kind of wanted to mention off the top, follow us on Twitter at Westlaw Pirates. Email us at westlawpirates at gmail.com. Um, engage with us. You know, we have had a ton of listeners reaching out to us, a um, ton of people on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of that. Um, we love having that interaction with you guys. So uh, please keep it up, um, especially, you know, coming off this past weekend's game oh my god just i mean we we wanted to talk about it. obviously we, we know that all of our listeners want to talk about it you know we heard from several people we need to get on this right away which is why you're getting this so early in the week um we just couldn't really wait to uh, to talk about uh this game but just right off the top guys i mean sitting down and watching northwestern Offensive explosion like we have not seen in a really, really long time. What was your first takeaway? I think, you know, I if anyone who was following Twitter, I had a lot of Twitter thoughts during the game. If you were listening on Twitter, you know that all of those thoughts are clustered around a very specific position group. I'm going to table that for right now, though, um, because I think when we did our Northwestern preview and really when we did the, the Maryland-specific preview episode last week, we kind of took a winding road to get to what I think for many people would be the most obvious place. Um, and it's only right that we start at that place this time. And I think, you know, Scuzz has some great thoughts teed up. So, you know, I, I cede the floor to you, sir. Well, it's Peyton Ramsey. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I, I mean, like, so quarterback play was the bugaboo of this team last year. I think I think it is impossible to, to totally divorce um, quarterback play from the offensive coordinator. And that's both from a scheme and development perspective. But the guys last year, just they really struggled to get it done. And there were a whole host of reasons, and we don't need to relive that here and now. Um, but Peyton Ramsey demonstrated very clearly what three years of starting experience in the Big Ten can do for a program yes and like we talked about it going into this matchup right on the other side of the field you had a really heralded um also transfer starting quarterback in Talia Tungavaloa who had never started in college football before and that was readily apparent in his performance and Ramsey I mean just like put aside all the scheme stuff that that we're going to dive into in a minute here in terms of throwing down field and an offense that looked, I'm sorry, a whole hell of a lot more complicated than whatever we've been running out for the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, personnel, offensive line, et cetera, et cetera. Like just Ramsey's composure in the pocket. How many times did he throw a ball 
when quarterbacks last year or even in the years of Clayton Thorson and before would have been out of that pocket or would have been taking a sack. Um, I mean, there were multiple times where the defensive end was a hand swipe away from Ramsey and he was still hanging in there and throwing and then balancing that with a uncanny just perspective on when and where to run. I mean, he was so deadly with his legs, which was frankly... I, I shouldn't say it was a surprise because he ran the ball almost a hundred times last year with, uh, or carried the ball. I should say almost a hundred times last year with Indiana for, for um, I think net 250 yards. So like, the, like the guy can do damage with his feet, but it was not something we talked a lot about coming into the year. And that was, um, I mean, he's <laughs> that, t- that touchdown run was, was unbelievable, but I, he just, he set the pace uh, for the whole team and that's what a quarterback does. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a couple things about Ramsey, in addition, that I want to highlight, you mentioned the pocket, right? I mean, so he was operating all night with what we'll call an NFL clean pocket, right? Like for an NFL quarterback, the expectation is like, to your point, if you're not getting grabbed, or if you're getting grabbed, but it's a jersey grab and not a pad grab, and there's not an arm on you, that's what a clean pocket looks like. So stand in there and throw the ball, right? Um, and college is a little bit different, right? Because you have some quarterbacks. I mean, obviously, I think a lot of you are thinking about what Scuzz just said and thinking about Hunter Johnson. TJ Green operates a lot the same way. These are guys who want to get mobile, right? Um, you know, I mean, obviously, we all think of like a Kane Coulter or something where you're thinking, oh, I'm feeling something here. Um, I need to go out. And that's something that, you know, even a Clayton Thorson had to work for years to get a lot better at, right? Um, to be like, all right, when do I stand in here? Um, and when do I stand as long as possible? Well, I mean, this pocket was NFL clean all night, to say the least. And again, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to step on the place you all know that I want to go in a little while. But it was a clean pocket for him. And what he was showing was, well, I'll stand in here all day if it's going to be like this. Like, I feel no pressure. I feel no nothing. Um, I'm going to deliver the ball. Like, don't worry about me. Like, I'm going to hit the open man. This is child's play for me. And that that sense of calm. Um, pervaded everything. Uh, the other thing that I want to mention, because I think a lot of people are looking at the stats, a lot of people are looking at you know the degree to which he hit his targets, the accuracy. I think of a couple of throws, too, that aren't even going to show up in the stats. Um, I think there were two targets to Wayne Dennis, um, who did not finish up with a reception. And the common thread through both of those throws is they were incredibly high-difficulty back-shoulder-type throws that Ramsey put in the exact right place. Um, and Dennis could have caught them. They were difficult catches. I'm not putting this on him at all. I'm just saying that they were balls that the kind of plays you'll need in really big games and really tight coverage, which there was on those plays. And Ramsey was just showing, look, like I, I can locate this all day. You're going to give me this kind of pocket to work with. I'm going to put the ball exactly where you want it, even if the coverage is just blanket coverage. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Can you, guys, with your, with- can, can you guys remember the last time um, Cats had a game without giving up a sack? It's don't no don't, no don't, I cannot don't yeah. bait me Sam don't bait me <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get there we'll get there but well, I mean so so one one quick reaction to to what John was saying because I think with the with the comment about the stats you're alluding to the fact that he only had 212 yards. Um, the cats did not have a lot of big plays or passes downfield, right? I think I think they averaged what six point eight per per attempt or something like that. Mm-hmm. But but let me let me outline just 
his first five throws, right? And this is air yards. This is not the yards that the receiver gained on the play. Um, and on almost all of these, they gained more than the numbers I'm about to, about to, to spill out. But here are the air yards of the first five passes that Ramsey threw. 10, 5, 8, 20, 16. Right. That is a gargantuan and dramatic increase in just the number of yards the ball is traveling downfield in the air from the past decade at Northwestern. In those first five passes, there was not a single, like, three yard out to the sideline. There wasn't a single bubble screen. The sixth pass was a screen pass to uh, Isaiah Bowser that was stopped for a loss. But, like, point being, Ramsey was attacking downfield from the jump. And this game was 30 to 3 at halftime. And in and even in the second quarter on that last drive before they went up 30 to 3, um, they had dialed it back. And it was much more of like, just take what's underneath. Just take what's underneath. Maryland can't stop us. They can't score on us. Like, as long as we don't screw up and turn the ball over and continue to keep the clock going, like, we're going to win this game, no problem. Right. So, I, like, 7.1 yards per attempt is, is what the uh, Cats had. Yeah. Which, which is frankly, at the high end of what Clayton Thorson generally produced on average, and I think really underrepresents the the nature of Northwestern's offensive attack early on in the game and how they did they did go downfield. Um, you know, not the forty yard or or thirty yard moonshots like that you were used to seeing to Skoranek or those sorts of things. But this is an offense that is going to attack and be aggressive and and adapt to like the modern tenets of offensive play, and that was well on display and and if you are just you know looking at those stats on Ramsey's line and thinking oh well, he didn't throw for that much like what's the deal there he didn't have because they didn't have to right and I think again part of the reason I bring up those Dennis highlights is he threw 70 Ramsey threw 70 complete passes two of the of the seven are the ones I'm talking about I can't remember a time where he missed an open receiver I don't think that happened in this game well, well and can we talk about how there were Open receivers, always open. Place. Yeah, and, right. and that that leads us to you know our next topic and just the scheme and the different looks that we were getting all night long and the variety of looks and the variety of routes and the variety of protections and the variety of personnel and you know this speaks one hundred percent to the new look offense of Mike Bajakian. Totally. Oh my god. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I go mean, for it, John. I'm, sure. I mean, I'll. Throw. I mean, there are a lot of different ways we can go with this. I think because Scuzz um, highlighted it so effectively in the two weeks leading up to this game, we'll start with Kyrick McGowan, um, where there were a couple of different plays where I was like, oh, like, look, Kyrick's at running back all of a sudden, and he's being used there. And then, like, you didn't see him there for, like, six or seven other plays. And he showed up in other places. And then, oh, look back, he's back at running back again. And it's like, oh, like, suddenly Riley Lee's got the ball on a jet sweep. I didn't see that coming at all. Like that was a random thing. And then we didn't see it. We saw something else. Um, I think the specific play that jumped out to me the most was Bowser's touchdown catch. Um, it was a, you know, I'm, it's was not a reinvention of the wheel, but it was a non-standard motion um, by multiple players. It was a non-standard look. Um, it confused Maryland's defense and Bowser ended up wide open in the end zone. I mean, it's just one of those things where, it's not, I guess it's that subtle difference between it was a dynamic play. Was it the most revolutionary play you've ever seen in your life? No, but it was a dynamic play with multiple facets 
the kind of thing we're not used to seeing in our offense. And to watch a play like that and watch it work like that, you go like, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, and, you know, that, that was just one example. So I watched that specific play like seven times. And I like this is a really good one for me to just dive deep on because it will uncover four or five things that I think are really important about the way the offense was structured last night. So we have heard for years that Northwestern doesn't have the talent in their receiver core to generate separation. Yet last night we saw open receivers all over the field. And yes, Maryland's defense is to quote you, John, the worst defense in the West lot pirates era, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the worst big 10 defense in the West lot pirates era. Yes. They're really horrible, but um, Northwestern had open receivers all night long and Maryland also played a lot of man coverage, which is another thing like, like that's like in the past teams have just gone man and we've been unable to beat them. And it's, it's, it's maddening because that frankly is at the feet of the offensive coordinator and the offensive coordinator alone, because, okay, if you don't have, like, if your guys aren't fast enough to beat a, a, a man coverage that's full of athletes, like you need to do something to help them. Don't just do the same old shit and expect different results on this play. So we had, uh, this was one of the, the many plays in, with North, in which Northwestern did have two tight ends on the field. And I was wrong about this. I thought we would see more two back sets and a lot of 11 personnel, i.e. three wide. And in, in, the, in the plays that I charted, roughly like 48 plays, probably two thirds of, of Northwestern's offense um, in the first three quarters, we were in um, about 40% of the time we were in 11 personnel i.e. three wide, one tight end, 40% of the time we were in 12 personnel. And then the, the other 10% of the time was either like a, a, a five wide look or um, there were a couple times where it looks like we had like two backs, no tight ends. It's hard because um, John Rain is indistinguishable from Riley Lees when they're in coverage and, and the angle is such that you can't see the numbers on their backs. And um, so like, you know, grain of salt, like my numbers aren't perfect, but we mixed it up a ton, a ton. Mm-hmm. And there were times where you had one tight end lined up in the slot and another one next to the line. You had a lot of time where you had um, Charlie Mangieri on the line and then John Rain, like in a fullback, like in a Danny Vitale kind of kind of spot as yeah. the second tight end. Um, you had uh, Kyrick and Bowser or Anderson in the backfield at the same time. You had Lees in the backfield on one play. They like, I don't understand how the Mick McCall offense can be described as like complex vis-a-vis hard to learn. This looked, maybe it's simple to learn and just really hard to defend because it looked complicated and multiple and variable. It was very, very interesting, but on this touchdown play to Bowser. So this is one of the rare plays I think where you had the two tight ends lined up next to one another. So you've got the five offensive linemen, you've got uh, Mangieri and rain uh, on the outside of them. Kyrick McGowan is the is out wide on that side of the field and goes in motion to start the play. This was another thing you saw all night long was a ton of motion. This is what is the NFL is doing right now. Um, uh, Sean McVay, uh, Andy Reid, the best offensive coaches in the NFL are incorporating motion because it it helps the quarterback diagnose and dictate what the defense is going to do. 
So McGowan moving across the field brings a cornerback with him, which means that Maryland was in man. John Rain goes straight up the field on a like on a post route into the end zone, and this clears out the outside linebacker, which means Bowser's one on one with the middle linebacker, who I think just gets frozen by by the McGow- the, the McGowan motion across the field, and by the time he starts chasing Bowser, it is it's over. Like when that ball is in the air. Like, it's a touchdown as long as Bowser doesn't drop it. There is no chance in hell that the middle linebacker is going to get to him. And this is how you create space on the field with scheme. And it was beautiful to watch uh, as, it was, as it was happening, to see that motion be, be incorporated, whether it was, you know, to, to lead to a jet sweep or a handoff or an end around, whether it was just as a decoy. You saw sometimes McGowan, uh, McGowan motioning out of the backfield. Like, it, like that sort of stuff. There was another play, I think, where we had another pass to Bowser where we had tight ends crossing in the middle where motion ahead of time pulled the linebackers to one side of the, of the, of the formation and Bowser went to the other. Like, it was really, really good all night long. Absolutely. I mean, I, it's the, I mean, you talk about separation. I mean, like, you know, RCB was an example of a guy where it's like, it seemed like every time he was getting thrown the ball, he was wide open. And I'm going, damn, he's open tonight. And it's like one of those things, we're right. It's like, yeah, and, Maryland's... And every, and every catch he had last year was like a contested up in the air, like like defender right on him catch. Right. And I mean, and again, yes, we get it. I know. Maryland is a garbage defense. Um, but they're it's not like they don't have any talent at all. Like, they're is a lot of scheme and a lot of things you're doing to turn people around. And I'm, and I'm telling you, if you subscribe to the idea that this all happened because Maryland's a bad defense, well, guess what? We play a lot of bad defenses this year. So (laughs) buckle up, up, baby. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, as long as we're talking about receivers and opening and you mentioned his name, but John rain um, is someone that I really wanted to talk about because you talked about like guys being used, guys being moved all over the place. And he is that guy. Right. I mean, he's you realize that I think in a way that a lot of us weren't necessarily expecting. He, I, I was dead wrong about this, by the way. He 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 is such a fit here because he's such a flexible player. Um, I think, you know, because you made the Danny Vitale comparison that this guy is, um, you know, we may have switched to the tight end nomenclature, but this guy is super back written all over him. I'll I'll go even farther. John Rain is proof to me that. Austin Carr missed his true calling as the greatest tight end in AAC conference history. <laughs> uh, I think like, I, because I look at him like, they're basically the same person. Like if John Rain's 230 pounds, that's 230 pounds soaking wet. If no one told you he was a wide receiver, I mean, told you he was a tight end, you would easily think he's a wide receiver. Um, but he has that super flexible skill set. And he absolutely can split out. He absolutely can play wide receiver. Um, and you can see how, you know, especially in a smaller conference, he's completely flexible. Like, he can play any position. Obviously, in the Big Ten, like, this is a guy who's going to get bodied if you put him up against a marquee defensive end the whole game. But you can see that Bajakian has no interest in doing that. Rain plays in a completely different place on every single play. And the guy gets open and is really good at catching the football. And he's really mobile and really fast. Um, and, and now that you see this, right, where it's like, 
there, he's exactly the kind of guy that Abjakin's looking at being like, oh my gosh, I've got like 10 packages I can feature this guy in. Um, and I, and he's just said, one of the guys, yeah. I said last week I didn't think he was going to be our leading receiver this year just because, you know, I thought he's good, like we're going to use him, but I think like McGowan's going to be that, you know, really interesting Swiss Army knife that, that you know, and, and Malik Washington as an X-factor, et cetera. I was wrong. Uh, John Ring was a leading receiver in this game. He and RCB both had five receptions, but like, it's interesting to just watch him from play to play. He goes all with w- which ways, right? I already talked about a play where he went straight up field. He had plenty of like little options to, to button hook or um, cut across the middle of the field underneath the coverage. There were plays where he, he rolled out into the flat. He caught a really nice uh, first down on, on, I think it was a third and short. I'm just rolling out into the flat and then as a blocker. So, you know, he like the, the most interesting thing that I saw them, them do with him, which really reminded me of Vitaly is that he'd be in that kind of offset tight end position, almost, almost lined up behind Mangieri and he would run across the formation behind the offensive line post snap It's almost like post snap motion. I don't know if that's a thing in football or not, but it, 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 it belied one of two things to me, like either a, they're just, they're just using this guy to confuse the hell out of the defenses. But B, um, a lot of times he might be a, like a blocking option for a a keeper from from Ramsey, depending how the defensive end moves or uh, or otherwise. And just it was really interesting to see him going literally in every possible direction off the snap. Um, well, I mean, and like absolutely, one hundred percent, and. You know, with, with all this, we, we've been talking about it, and you know, uh, John, you're, you're champing at the bit. I can I can just tell that you, we all want to get there because none of what we say, none of n- none, none of, of what it. we yeah. saw, have been talking about up to this point happens without the outstanding play of the Trench Cats, Kurt Anderson's boys, the offensive line. Oh my God, what a game they played! I so you're right. I've been sitting on this, and again, you know, we haven't talked about the running backs either but it folds right into that so I mean, we can we, we can go here and like you said i've 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 you've been holding me back for long enough um I mean, but i mean i this is all gravy i want to talk about everything but um i guess here's the entry point that i'll choose to to go in with this um, there are a couple different highlight packages online for anyone who's listening right now wants there's someone matthew loves ball this is just a random name. Someone has a 15-minute, 35-second um, highlight package that you'll see right now if you just type Northwestern Maryland into YouTube and you look it up. It's most of the impact plays in the game. And if you're looking to watch anything, particularly offensive line play, it's it's a place to do it. But going through and watching this, there's a place, you know, about like 10 minutes, 45 seconds in or something thereabouts, maybe a little bit longer, um, where... If you look, it's the fourth quarter of the game and something like 11 minutes left in the fourth quarter of the game. And there's a play where Maryland has a guy, Jordan Mosley, who is a defensive back slash linebacker, kind of this hybrid thing that Maryland's really trying to do right now. Um, He's one of the most experienced returning defenders for Maryland's defense um, last year. And there's a play on a third and four where Northwestern gives the ball to, to Evan Hall. And Evan Hall runs for about a six-yard gain. And I encourage you to go to this highlight package, or any highlight package that's long, um, and find this play and watch it. You might not see it the first time you watch it, 
but you'll see it in the first three or four times that you watch it. And once you see it, it's the only thing you'll be able to see on this play for the next 10 to 15 times that you watch it, which you will. Um, Jordan Mosley um, is the play side uh, linebacker kind of hybrid on this play. And uh, Josh Preeb sees him, picks him up, puts him in the bin, and brings him down to the curb for morning pickup. (laughs) (laughs) It is one of the most violent things that happened in the game. Maybe the most violent thing. Uh, Josh Preeb didn't need to do him like this, but if you've listened to us talk about Josh Preeb for this long, uh, ever since he signed, ever since we saw his tape, there should be nothing surprising here. It is vicious and over the top. And then, a handful of plays later, when Evan Hall has his touchdown run, I kid you not, watch the tape, he comes pulling, and Jordan Mosley says, no, no, I'll put myself in the bin, (laughs) and lies down on the ground, and then Preeb jumps on top of him. Tell me that's not what happens in this play. Um, oh, the best, my the favorite un- part about this is well, that is that this is like the so Preeb's incredible and he's not starting. Oh, so the the truly unfortunate thing about this play is that on the same play, um, what Mosley didn't do is tell linebacker Cortez Andrews that he was going to get put in the bin as well by Charlie Schmidt. If Andrews would have known, maybe Andrews just lies down and puts himself in the bin also. I should point out that Andrews is a guy who had like an Auburn offer, a Georgia offer. He's a 230-pound linebacker who Charlie Schmidt was lying on top of full-on pancake while Hall was rounding down the field into the end zone. Go watch the tape. And as Scuzz pointed out, neither of these guys played until the fourth quarter. And neither of them start because the five guys ahead of them are legitimately deserving of being ahead of them on the depth chart right now. It's all a long way of circling back to the fact that I'm going to kind of focus on a specific guy (laughs) for a little while, but lost in all this should not be the fact that the offensive line is 10 deep right now, solidly. And these guys obliterated Maryland. I mean, obliterated them. Maryland starters were still on the field. The guys I'm talking about are starters, okay, who were still on the field getting dominated, manhandled by our second unit offensive line, several of whom, like Preeb, had never played a college football game until tonight, until that night. So, yes, is Maryland a really bad defense? Yes, they are. But there's something to be said for an entire too deep of offensive line feasting for an entire game. Um, So with all of that said, okay, um, folks, Al Gore tried to warn us. He really did. He tried to warn us about Man Bear Pete, and we didn't listen. (laughs) How did he try to warn us? And now Man Bear Pete is feasting. (laughs) Uh, on on helpless players throughout the game. Um, there, I it, it happened almost immediately. I was kind of in shock 
watching the game being like, boy, I, you know, throw into the fire. I show her, show hope he does well. And then it was just like this mix of, I mean, just go find the longest highlight package you can find and just watch him on every single play. It's a mix of linebackers and defensive ends getting blown back with a degree of surprise. Like, oh my God, I didn't think I was going to get hit that hard. The second drive of the game, there are consecutive passing plays where he sits on someone. He's the well, one well, pass well, rusher. Real, well, real quick, he is Peter Skaronsky. Yes. Who, if if you haven't been listening to our last two podcasts, we've been raving about his talent and the fact that he is he was going to start on this O line as a true freshman. We thought maybe at center, um, maybe at left tackle, and they threw him into the fire at left tackle, like John's saying, and it was. It was a epic performance. Yeah, I, mean, I, I made it. I made a point to you know just kind of keep my eye on number seventy-seven, uh, and like, oh wow, it was just wow. Like, and the, and this is a guy who's a true freshman and is still going to probably put on twenty, thirty more pounds. And oh my god, it's one of those guys where you're like, he's not six six three twenty. He's six four. What two ninety five? Two ninety five. Yeah. To, and you're and you go and you can see the Maryland guys being like, oh my God, I he's he's I didn't think he was this powerful, and I mean there are a couple of plays you go all the way through the entire really three plus quarters he's on the field, you're just watching him being like, oh my God, they just they, these guys are just getting manhandled. There's you know one guy I specifically you know mentioned by. Um, name but joseph belletapelli who is a sophomore defensive lineman um there's a play i mean this is a guy who was a big recruit multiple sec offers including georgia amongst others i mean he's not a four-star but i'm talking a solid recruit okay from north carolina there's a play where ramsey had a long scramble i think in the second quarter it wasn't for the touchdown but it was maybe his longest run of the night and on that play, um, Man Bear Pete grabs Boletta Pele and moves him from the right side of the line beyond the left side of the line. He just shoves him to the other side of the field. And Ramsey's like, oh, well, I guess that side of the field's open now. And he just takes off running. I mean, I this it's... That, that's the that's the play. I think the announcers called that out as well. Is like Maryland lost contain and Skaronsky sealed it off. And I thought like what was so impressive like, to me sealed about sealed it off. Yeah. Well, it, what what was so impressive to me is is the way he would punish Maryland for their mistakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not just a guy who's really talented and can can deflect a defensive end. You know, coming coming after the QB and and rushing with the various different techniques. Like when Maryland would would get off balance and open up contain, he pounced. He absolutely pounced, right. and like that—that is—that just adds a whole another dimension of of um, of effectiveness. And I mean, the, the the run game in general was amazing. Now, we, like John, you documented it very well. Like their defensive line was a catastrophe, whether it was opt outs or graduations or transfers or or just a, a dearth of talent. Like they were in trouble and. We absolutely ate them for lunch. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but the team we play next week has some similar problems on the defensive line. Probably not as many, but like, my God, the whole like the like Bowser 
thank like welcome back Bowser, but like what he was able to do was predicated on the effectiveness of the offensive line at that first level. And then he was making guys miss and bouncing off of players at the second level. Right. And I think you talk the, the running back game. I mean, obviously it's Anderson and Bowser had the biggest days. And I think, right. Bowser for me, the big thing is, I mean, the average per carry, not amazing, but he was the lunch pail guy, right? I mean, 23 for 70, he got all the hard yards, um, was given, you know, a lot. He was tackled for a loss a couple of times, but it was the Bowser we know and love. The guy was, goes downhill like a bowling ball, and if he gets a little forward momentum, um, he's really able to roll. And then Anderson, who, I mean, everyone's going to think about that run when he cut all the way across the field on the 37-yard touchdown run. Awesome play. It's that shiftiness that, of course, like, he's never going to be able to escape in his life. Everyone's going to be like, just like Dad, um, every time he does it. And it's true. <laughs> Um, and Damian Anderson, you know, if you watched his appearance on the, you know, the lakes, the post sacred Saturdays, um, he'll be the first one to tell you, but he also talked about Drake's improvement and you see it in the strength. Um, Drake is stronger now and he is a willing hitter. Um, there was one play over by the sideline where he just enthusiastically delivered a, a vicious hit on a tackler going out of bounds, but both of those guys showed that, man, they're like, holy cow, this line. Um, Bowser mentioned it. You know, they asked him in the post game, and he was just like, uh, we just followed these guys. Like, they were just dominating all night. And it's like, yeah, they were. Um, and by the time, you know, and this is not to take anything away from Hall, who did great in the fourth quarter, but the starters were on the field when Evan Hall was out there. They were just thoroughly demoralized and destroyed. Um and I think they probably had to be like, oh, my God, they just subbed in their back five. I mean, by the time the Andrew Marty and friends came in, I mean, there was that drive that ended in that rush where I don't know where we started, but I don't think we we threw a pass that entire drive. Nope. It was just like, it, this is our second unit, but they're all talented and hungry, and they all want to just run over you. And that's exactly what they happened. I mean, you throw Cam Porter in, too. Um, I think... Porter was a guy who I think looked exactly like the upper end of the expectations for what I thought. Um, I was hoping and was happy to see that um, his low center of gravity is so exciting. I mean, that guy's low to the ground and runs with power. And I think is just, you know, has that bowling ball potential, but that speed too. I mean, it's, it was so many guys looked so good, but you know, just like you said, um, the the fact that the line was so dominant just made it all go just and you know just to, to briefly circle back to where we very first started right it's the the pass pro two and the fact that they they also kept a completely clean pocket and you know it's this was the biggest margin of victory for Northwestern since what the seventies and that's why because the line made absolutely everything easy I, I want to put on my stats hat to just hit one one more element here of, of the design of the offense. And when, when you, when you talk to analytics guys, particularly that are engaged in the NFL, like the emerging theme in all sports basically is how do you balance aggressiveness with expected return? If you think about the NBA and how much that game has shifted to the three point shot, that's what it's all about. Right. And in football, the, the general analytic hypothesis is that 
you want to avoid third down. You want to be more aggressive on first and second down to keep the chains moving and keep your offense going and avoid third down. Like running for three yards and running for three yards and then trying to convert your third down is not the right way to play football. The smart approach to football is getting more aggressive, throwing more on first down, going downfield more. On the first three drives, Northwestern's offense was perfectly balanced in splitting pass attempts and rush attempts on first down. Now, a couple of those those plays, Ramsey did take off and run, but they were pass sets that he then scrambled out of. But that's, I mean, it's a gigantic departure from, from past eras. Um, the other thing that's really incredible when you look at the team stats for the game, so Northwestern was 8 of 16 on third down, which is really good. Um, whether that's sustainable against really good defenses, you know, Remains to be seen. Maryland was only 4 of 11. But Northwestern had 31 first downs. They had twice as many first downs as they had third downs. And that is a sign of an offense that was playing aggressive and making aggressive play calls and approaching the game in the right, smart way. And again, dramatic departure from years past and just phenomenal. We've been talking for a while and we haven't even mentioned the defense. Um, who, were in, who were also incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just Talia Tangavaloa was all over the place. Um, looked every, he, was sail, he was sailing balls left, yeah. right, and center. Three interceptions, uh, two sacks, and never got into a rhythm at all. Um, yeah, I don't want to talk about the defense as long as we talked about the offense, but... Um, <laughs> Because you know, this is a defense that we know. I mean, I, did anything surprise you guys from you know, from the defense? I think so. I'm, I think if you're talking surprise, I think one of the things that people are just looking at the box score of the game and wondering, boy, uh, you know, none of our linebackers, the vaunted linebacker core, best 4-3 linebacker core in the conference, had more than four tackles. Well, Maryland only had the ball for 22 minutes in this game. Um <laughs> This was a total one-sided bloodbath of a game. Um, they only ran it 20 times. Right. And I think the, you know, we talked going into the game last week that kind of like what we would do if we were Mike Loxley. And he pretty much did that exact thing. It was just a disaster um, because we were like, look, their best Chance is probably not to start Lance Legend, which again we called him. I think Legendry. I didn't know it was pronounced. We had, we, yeah. we had all sorts. We were of all over the yeah, place. Ask you for that. For yeah, that, for that French expertise, John. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so they went straight to Tagovailoa um, because they figured he would be the better pocket, and we knew in that situation um, what Hankowitz was liable to do, um, and Hankowitz basically did that thing he also mixed it up in a couple creative ways i mean i'm not going to say that a guy who got a sack off a corner blitz from cam ruiz was playing super soft because it wasn't always like that um mike really was trying to mix it up but to to your point you know right off the top um they handed the keys to tagovailoa and you know he wasn't ready um he's gonna be ready i'm sure eventually but right he had serious control issues um, we collapsed the pocket on him if we weren't, you know, regularly getting sacks or putting him on the ground. But he... he he was composed back there, though. Like he did a pretty good job of like stepping up and making a throw or avoiding 
the pressure and making a throw. Like, like he didn't, he didn't look like a deer in the headlights back there. He just, he didn't have any touch. Right. And, and, and the thing is he didn't have any touch and was throwing into great coverage. And he was, and that's what, what, and if there's anything that surprised me, it was not, not how great the coverage was, but the athleticism, which I knew we had in our defensive backfield because we've been talking about it and the development of the players back there. And we knew that these guys coming in like Coco Azima, like speed demon, right? But holy hell, the ability of the safeties to get over in, in these deep shot scenarios and pick balls off and just like un, unreal, unreal performance from the secondary. Yeah, I think, you know, if you ask me kind of who had the hardest job in this game, um, you know, if on the defensive side, I, it would be a name I wouldn't have thought I'd be bringing up. I mean, although we sort of had eat, had talked about it, but I'd say Rod Hurd had the toughest job in this game. Um, he was primary cover man for a lot of the game. I was not expecting that. Um, he played and played hard. I mean, he had Rakim Jarrett on a couple plays and some stuff, and I was like, oh, boy. They put the kid right into it, and he had a good game. I mean, you're talking second-leading tackler, had a pass defensed, um, and, you know, had a couple times where guys he was covering caught the ball. But I was very much like, oh, man, he's they trusted him, and they put him right in. And, you know, he had a heck of a lot of responsibility and did well. And then on the other side, Hampton had that major pick right off the bat. Um, so the corners, you know, absolutely delivered, which with Newsom being out was huge. But yeah, the safeties were just great. Like you said, I mean, Azima's speed, you know what you're going to get from Pace. He's the he's the veteran statesman back there now. Um, and I think not only was he in perfect position, that was an awesome interception from him. I almost was like, one of the things I caught in this game that I was loving is I caught a moment of... Pace's glee at Brandon Joseph's violence. (laughs) And it was awesome. Because I think if there was a revelation back there, start to finish, it was Joseph. I mean, you wonder why they're putting a redshirt freshman in at strong safety. This guy is violent. Um, He, He led the team in tackles. Right, he did. I mean, five solo tackles. And I mean, this is a guy who loves to hit. And I mean, you. this guy is... That's your starting. That's your starting strong safety for a long time now because he's a redshirt freshman and, and he's just the the gleeful delight in hitting from this guy. I was like, oh man. Um, so I think again, it was it was a game where, from a pure tackling perspective, there weren't a heck of a lot of opportunities uh, for these guys to really show out, and yet um, a guy like Joseph found his opportunity. To, to really show out. So those were those were the big things. And again, it's like the linebackers didn't have a heck of a lot to do um, and did a perfect job when they were, you know, when they were given the chance. Um, do, but then, you I, know... I do, I do want to bring up uh, the defensive line. Um, oh, oh, absolutely. You know, mainly the injuries. I mean, Jason Gold went out early um, and just the, the depth that was already going to be a little bit shaky with, uh, you know, some of the opt-outs. Um, you know, we have, have some questions on the defensive line and with a couple more injuries, you know, that are, are you, are you guys worried yet? I mean, it's, it's way too early and, you know, there, there's still plenty of season left, but is this an area of concern? 
so no, but it's an area of extreme interest. And I guess, you know, let me unpack what I mean, because I think I told you guys before the game, I mean, before we started this pod, that offensive line was what I was most excited to talk about. Defensive line is what I think is is the most interesting thing. And that's mainly positive, but you're right. I mean, you could highlight some storm clouds if you wanted to. The short of it is this. Losing gold is is bad news for the exact same reason that seeing gold number one on the depth chart was good news. Through sheer talent, he was able to leap to the top of an incredibly deep position group. So on one hand, that was a tremendous testament to his talent and him being a special player. So in that sense, you're losing a player who is that special. On the other hand, that position group continues to be absolutely stacked. Um, So in that sense, I'm not worried from that perspective. Where things get interesting and complicated is relative to the defensive ends. Um, And what I mean is this. We talked about this, you know, prior to this game, and it really showed out in this game. More so than I can remember, maybe as long as we've been doing this pod, Northwestern has really defined ends and really defined tackles. The ends who played in this game, with the one exception maybe of Ernest Brown, are capital E ends. Guys, no one would mistake for a defensive tackle. And you think about a guy like Gaziano, a guy like Samdup Miller, you know, who's out this season. Those are guys where if if that guy shifts inside for a play or three or five, you're never going to notice because you're like, well, he's a defensive tackle slash end, right? Like Dean Lowry, exactly the same version of guy, right? Um, the Ekuliota is not that guy. Ekuliota looks like a safety. A big NFL safety. You're talking about a guy who's like 6'4", 220. Like two, two, listed at 250, but... Yeah, no, he sir. Carry, he carries no. it well. Yeah, if, if, if he does, he's carrying that in pure muscle. Because, I mean, like, this guy, he looks lean out there. Um, and on one hand, you see the speed with him. And you think, thank God, we need a guy like this. Um, a guy on third down who's just going to try to burn around the outside. But basic physics tell you that a guy like that's getting moved off the ball um, in the way that a Gaztown is not going to get moved off the ball. And I think Ernest Brown, the fact that he is that classic Northwestern mold, um, is a big deal. And you want to have him out there all the time. A guy like Tommy Adebaware is equally huge um, because this guy, I, I get so excited to watch him. Talk about a guy who has the weight as densely packed onto him as possible. He's what, like 6'2", 265? And I don't think that guy's got like a, like a shred of fat on him. He's just like a muscle machine. And one of the things that, you know, we were most interested in to watch was what would we do in like third and long situations? And what we saw was no cheetah package. It's a four-two-five look, but Adebaware moves inside to tackle. So you're talking about a 6'2", 265-pound tackle. And that's how he got his sack. He went inside. Brown was at end. And they stunted and crisscrossed. And Adebaore got to the quarterback. You're going to see a lot of that this season. 
And to the extent that we have a Swiss Army knife kind of guy, Tommy is that guy. Because even though he's underweight for a tackle, he's so strong. But to the point of Sam, you know, this worry description, like worry, interesting, etc. Realistically, what I really think you're going to be seeing is Hankowitz getting creative with players and personnel in ways that you haven't seen in a while. You're going to see three defensive tackles on the field on random downs. Um, you might see four defensive tackles on the random downs. You're going to see guys switching in and out of random positions. You're going to see a lot. Whereas before it's like, you know, what we've kind of all been used to is like, look, not only is there a real plug and play with defensive end and defensive tackle, a lot of our tackles kind of look like ends and our ends kind of look like tackles. So it's going to be a uniform presentation the whole time. That's not what it's going to be like now. Um, you're going to see a lot of juggling of personnel and Hankowitz really, you know, taxing that experienced mind to be like, what's the best personnel for this situation? What's the best personnel for this situation? The depth is there, but there are those times, right? Where yes, like there are times when you have to be thinking, look, if a team wants to try to go heavy and pound us, you're not going to be able to have Leota and Adebore on the field at the same time. You're just not. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot of that that they're going to have to figure out. Well, it was interesting. I, I want to say in the second half, you saw a bit more three down linemen, uh, three, three, five kind of action. Mm-hmm. And with the emergence of Joseph and how fearsome of a tackler he is from the safety position, I mean, he, he can effectively operate as a fourth linebacker, much like Travis Willock did in the past. And that at least gives you, like I'm thinking about Iowa, right, who who will try to run the ball. Um, they've got a, a, a big hog molly of a quarterback. Um, I don't know that he runs a lot, but he might try to. I, I don't know. Like they, they're going to try to pound it a bit against us. And this is like, I mean, if, like their, their coaches saw the same tape well, they're going to get a lot more tape than we saw, but they, they, they're going to see the same thing, right? Like, oh, let's attack Northwestern's defensive line. Let's see what they do. And I expect that you're going to see Fisher, Bergen, and Gallagher. Gallagher, by the way, had an incredible first half. Yeah, you're going to see sure. those guys show up a whole lot more um, alongside Joseph in that kind of scenario where it's not a team where you know their, their bevy of talent is at the wideout position and they're, they're coming for us up the gut. Right, exactly. And I think that's the thing, right? I mean, you know, we're going to be pivoting to Iowa soon, but I think you're right. Like, Iowa's not going to come in with, like, Iowa knows where their bread is buttered, um, at least, you know, looking at the Purdue game. Right. They're going to come in and they're just going to try to go heavy and well, try to smash us. And, and I think and, I, I think that's a, a great uh, point, a great place to, to pivot ahead to Iowa. Um, you know, we... Watching that game against Purdue, um, honestly, I, I didn't get to see a ton of it, but, uh, you know, Purdue beats Iowa. Um, you know, did you guys see it? <laughs> Called it. Yeah, that, that, very true. And, you know, Purdue shorthanded without their head coach um, and Brondale Moore uh, took down an Iowa team. Um, what, you know, when looking at Iowa from this past week, and you know, looking at what our defense did, uh, you know, last night, you know, what 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 do you make of this uh, this weekend's game? I think it's 
So I think in terms of what you should be worried about, or not worried about, but be focused on going into this game, would be the first thing would be would probably be Iowa's rushing attack, right? Um, I think Iowa had success on the ground against Purdue, 195 rush yards. To the extent that they really had something going in this game, that was it. Um, so on one hand, Tyler Goodson and Makai Sargent both had great days running the ball. On the other hand, these are guys we have dealt with before. Um, this is nothing Northwestern is not used to from Iowa. And Purdue's bad on defense. They don't have a good run defense. That's why the numbers are so good. Um, Purdue's bad that at was, defense. That was so... Um... That was so damning to me that that Iowa couldn't run the ball better against against Purdue, and we we talked in the off season about their o, their O line and well, and that's the thing too. Like they, I mean, you look at the numbers, you're like, it's good, but it's like, yeah, no, good is, I mean, it's okay. Great is what we did to Maryland, and Iowa didn't do that, right? Yeah, I I just thought that was weird. Um, I mean, we thought we 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 thought Purdue was going to struggle on the defensive line this year. I, you know, may, maybe I was better. The the thing with Iowa, much like Maryland, is that their QB is brand new and he was spraying balls all over the place. Uh, he was twenty two of thirty nine, like barely better than fifty percent. Yes, he threw for two hundred sixty five yards. He did not throw a pick, um, but there were a lot of wild throws. This is stunning to me. So. Amir Smith-Marset, to me, is Iowa's absolute X-factor best player. He was their top returning receiver. Um, he got the ball uh, on a number of rushing plays last year. He, he returned the ball last year for them. He carried the ball twice out of the backfield for Iowa. Didn't catch a single pass. I have been scouring the internet looking for like injury news on this dude, and I can't find anything. So... Like maybe maybe this is not some weird thing, but I like their leading receiver was their tight end who caught you know five balls for seventy one yards. That's pretty decent, That's, you know, much like John Rain and how he did against Maryland. But in a game that they lost, where they had to like try to throw to get back in it at the end, like Iowa, Iowa presents to me as a flawed team on on offense and defensively like oh i mean what 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 happened to their run d i mean so it's it's crazy i think one of the important things to remember about this game is purdue was kneecapped coming into this game uh right i mean they not only did they lose more they had some they lost someone else major too right um running back wasn't it or am i wrong um but i i'm pretty sure that purdue was missing someone else other than more coming into this game. Um, but I mean, more alone, you're talking about an absolutely massive departure here at running back. Um, and with him gone, um, Purdue was again down, arguably, you know, their best player, although David Bell is throwing his hat in the ring pretty strongly at this point. And Purdue still won. Um, because they're pretty clearly the better team than Iowa right now. And to Scuzz's point, having a quarterback who's trying to figure things out and a run game that, you know, looks half decent but is kind of underperforming against a bad defensive front is not what you want with the defense that Iowa's apparently rolling out, which early signs, you know, we kind of talked about the fact that Iowa's ha is losing a lot is mediocre at linebacker, but has this pedigree of 
generating things right year in and year out and they are not generating that at least through one game in the season and the big area to highlight is the defensive line um we talked about the fact that they that you know two this is a team two years removed from one of the greatest defensive lines ever but three of those guys are gone the three best guys and last year the best guy of the four from the year before was AJ Epineza who they had last year and now he's gone they also lost their two starting defensive tackles they returned Golston Golston didn't really do anything against Purdue um and he's supposed to be the guy now and there are a couple serious indicators I mean Purdue rolled out as a starting running back Xander Horvath and on one hand Xander Horvath is 6'3", 230, so he's a giant battering ram. On the other hand, he's recruited as a linebacker and walked on at Purdue and had no major offers from anybody. He's not Derrick Henry, okay? This guy is he's just... He's Mike Allstott 2.0. Yeah, I don't know. Let's, yeah. he Maybe. He's, may, let, well, he looked like that against Iowa, to your point, right? Um, and then... <laughs> and and he, I, he, he carried the ball 80 times last year for uh 370 yards he averaged just under five per carry like sure he's good but i don't i don't know that i think all stop might be a level he's yeah. not a cheap i mean right. he's fair, fair, he's fair, just fair, fair. he's a strength back and i think last year they were able to use him as a change of pace like he's he's the you know kind of the point is like you think of jeff brom who again was not at this game and brian brom was in his place because jeff's having to sit out for COVID. but you think of his wizardry in the offense that he's designed and everything, right? Like packages, et cetera. Horvath isn't really that. Horvath is like, and then when he needs a breather, he can throw this guy into the line. And that's when... Yeah, King Doru is the guy that was their presumed starter. Right. Uh, He was their starter last year. Now, he he didn't put up incredible... I mean, he he only gained 500 yards, scored five TDs last year, but... um, he is the more traditional, like he's 5'10", he's faster, you know, he's he's the he's a better fit. And, and he, didn't, the, he didn't play, as it seems. Right. Yeah, exactly. He also caught 20 balls last year. So, like, I mean, he, he fits the Brom offense, to right. your point, John. Exactly. Better. And so, two days before, I think it was on Thursday, they announced that he that's, was, he's out with a hammy. That's so what he it wasn't was. going to play. And then they had to turn it over to Horvath, who, like, like I mean, your point is spot right. on. So like, like, that's so a weird fit. Right, so it's like nominally, Horvath's their third string running back theoretically, and their change of pace bruiser back. And they just threw him into the line 21 times, and he gained 6.1 yards of carry. And Iowa's uh, two of Iowa's three leading tacklers were their strong safety and their free safety. And again, our leading tackler was our strong safety too. But it's one of those read-between-the-lines things. When the other team's averaging six yards of carry and two of your leading tacklers are your safeties, that's second level tackles. That means the guy's getting into the second level. And that, of course, is huge because Iowa's bread has been buttered with their defensive line for years now. We talked about the fact, you know, we've talked many times that there was that era where they had Ben Neiman and Josie Jewell, and it was all those guys. They don't have good linebackers now. They don't. Nick Neiman is the best of a mediocre group. They've been getting it done on the defensive line. And in this game, the defensive line didn't show up. If you want to look at like who was their best defensive line performer, it was Davion Nixon, who on one hand had two and a half tackles for loss. He's 305 pounds and he's a defensive tackle. Like 
He is the kind of guy I was trying to churn out, and he had himself a half-decent game. But Golston didn't do anything, and no one else on the defensive line did anything. And for Iowa, that's a huge problem, because right now this feels like a team that doesn't do anything particularly well. Um, And I think, you know, the character of this game, you're going to see two teams try to kind of throw throw it at each other. And I don't mean throw it. I mean like on the ground, like throw punches at each other, right? We've seen this Northwestern Iowa game before. We know know how this is going to go, right? So on one hand, you're thinking, all right, well, Northwestern's, you know, dealing with some injuries, you know, we're missing Miller. Now we're missing gold. We've got these relatively light ends in the rotation. How are we going to do it? Like the way we're probably going to do it is just bring a bunch of big guys out and put some extra defensive tackles on the field, um, and just Brown's going to play a ton. Adebowore is probably going to play, you know, be moved around to maximize his strength, effectiveness, and stuff, and we'll make it work. Um, Iowa is, you know, and it's like, on the flip side, Iowa didn't really show that they can move the ball that amazingly against a defensive line much worse than what Northwestern's defensive line is. And on the flip side, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think we're going to take a Michigan State defense approach here against Iowa, and that is that we are going to just attack with our linebackers. Like, our our D-line might be, like, relatively weaker than last year. Our linebackers are arguably the best in the conference, a, a, a case you have made numerous times, John. On the other side of the ball, like, Iowa's entire front seven is uninspiring, and maybe their offensive line is too, and I think – Unlike with Maryland, where they had such talent at wideout that you couldn't quite say, hey, we're going to just commit to shutting down the run and see if you can beat us over the top with your new QB. That's the approach for Iowa, though. They have, they, I mean, especially if Smith Marset is banged up or missing from the receiver core, like they don't have the type of players there that can, that, that, that put the fear of God into you. Um, I mean, there were some times watching Maryland where Dante Demas is running up the field. Dude is like 6'3. And like he's got five inches on Rod Hurd, and you're watching it thinking, "Oh God, this is going to go poorly." But Northwestern, like, you know, uh, accounted for themselves very, very well uh, in those situations. Iowa doesn't have those type of mismatches or those types of players, um, and this is going to be more of the traditional Iowa Northwestern matchups that you've seen in the past, and it's it's going to be fascinating because we just put up, like, we just put up 300 rushing yards on a. Big Ten opponent who arguably has a horrible defense, but still, like our our O line is big and mean and excited, and Iowa's front seven is uninspiring. Yep. Now we are recording this on Sunday. You know, there's the entire week of practice and news to be coming out. So, um, you know, a lot can change. You know, as far as you know, how bad is Jason Gold's injury? How bad are some of the injuries on on Iowa? You know. A lot, you know, we're, we're kind of going into this preview a little bit blinder than we normally are just because we're recording so much earlier in the week. But, um, yeah, it, this is definitely going to be an, an interesting game. I mean, like, if, if Petrus is as inconsistent as he was against Purdue, then I really like our chances. If he's going to spray 17 balls uh, against... Uh, Northwestern, I'm going to tell you what, it's not going to be a situation where none of those 17 balls get picked off because uh, he ain't playing that kind of defense this week. Um, Cats are three-point underdogs. Okay. 
but but ESPN's matchup predictor has us uh, has us favored. Really? So interessante. Yeah. I I think I mean again I we just keep coming back to the offensive line. We the offensive line looked so good. It's so hungry. They had a huge confidence builder, and they get it. They know the degree of gift of difficulties going going way up. They know that Golston didn't show out last game, but is still light years better than any defensive lineman um, that um, that they saw this past week. But you know what? This is the kind of situation where I am just going, oh God, let Man Bear Pete get the chance to show out against Golston. <laughs> like I'm like, I want those two guys going head to head. I'm foaming at the mouth for it. I want the chance to watch that battle. And I'm telling you, you saw what our top 10 offensive linemen look like. It's unclear who Iowa's third best defensive lineman is right now. And if our guys are getting to the second level, um, I'm going to tell you right now, none of Iowa's linebackers are going to be able to handle it. And I think, yeah, I we were all feeling you know, guarded about this game before the results of this past weekend. And now I think we are all pretty bullish. I do want to talk about the rest of the Big Ten, um, you know, this this past weekend and, you know, some some things to look at for this upcoming weekend. But, uh, Scuzz, we got a, a really great email from a listener um, this past week. And uh, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of take, take this and, and talk a little bit more about uh, what Sam from the West Loop is talking about and what what we're planning on doing moving forward. Yeah, so we got a we got a, we got a note from Sam. Um, what about a week before the Maryland game? Uh, basically, just kind of expressing his desire to, you know, he's he's gonna dive in and watch Northwestern like usual, but was just um, feeling, uh, especially like he wanted to give back to the community, given that uh, the community is still suffering from COVID. You know, um, I think. There, there's a lot of resources that it takes to to stage Big Ten football right now, right? Um, from these universities, uh, for you know, just just the tests that are being using used every day for for the players and personnel, et cetera. So, just you know, in acknowledgement of that, was kind of asking us, hey, you know, you guys are are, are connected and 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 on good charities to donate to that were pandemic related, that um, were in the Chicago community that we would recommend or, or suggest. And that got, that got us thinking a little bit too, because we've had, you know, if, if you listen to our shut it down and start it back up podcasts um, at, you know, what early August and late August respectively um, we've had, you know, we've struggled with some similar thoughts and, and we were, so we, we, we dug around and came up with some pretty cool stuff. And what we've decided to do is every week we're going to be making a donation to uh, a, a catering company in Evanston called soul and smoke. And this is a, a barbecue joint that um, does catering uh, and has, at the beginning of the pandemic, basically said, hey, anybody who can donate, we will be happy to provide meals. They've provided over 100,000 meals to um, just people in need in the community who either uh, you know, are, are either um, food insecure or uh, limited because of COVID. They've provided meals to the Evanston Fire Department, the Evanston Hospital. Um, they've been recognized by you know, not just the Chicago Tribune and others, but by, you know, the, the communities in which they serve. And it's just, it, it, they seem to be doing just a really awesome job and um, are, are engaged 
in Evanston and the, the, the greater Chicago area. Their, their owner is from the South side originally. And it's just, it's just a cool story. So, um, we wanted to jump in and support this local charity and give back, um, with, with everything going on. And we want to encourage, you know, all of y'all out there to do the same. We know there's a lot of people who listen to our podcast that are not based in Chicago, you know, find something in your neighborhoods, uh, find something in your, in your cities that, that you want to support. But, um, this idea of, you know, we're getting a lot of enjoyment and, and are really grateful, you know, to be able to watch football this fall. And in, in that vein, you know, um, it just, it feels good to, uh, to be doing something for the community at the same time. So, uh, we've, we've put the information out on, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook about soul and smoke. And if you're, if you're keen to join us, if you're able to contribute, um, please do share your stories with us. Uh, if you want, we'll, we'll highlight that, that sort of stuff on our show. Um, when we have a good chance, but, um, yeah, we're, we're really excited about this and, it just, it, it just kind of fits us. You know, if you, you know us, we love to tailgate, like the barbecue angle is pretty cool. Um, and, and like I said, these guys are doing an awesome job, uh, for the community. So, um, so we're, we're, we're really thankful to Sam frankly for, for bringing this up and getting our wheels turning on it. And, um, we're, we're excited to be, uh, to be jumping in. So you'll, you'll hear us talk about this every week, probably here on out throughout the season. Yeah. And spot on because, you know, we do, you know, our, origins come from from tailgating and you know it just makes so much sense to you know do something with food because you know we we love to throw a good tailgate we love to feed our guests anyone who's coming by and you know we're not able to do that this year um because there is no tailgate but this is a, another way that that we can help feed people who directly or indirectly our fans are are part of the northwestern football or evanston community Absolutely. And I think there's, you know, t- to the point, you know, to, to what brought this all about, we, we understand that degree of ambivalence, right? We understand people being like, look, um, the players are playing, you know, and of course, a lot of them want to play, but the idea that, you know, the, the players are putting themselves at risk, and that being kind of a reflection of there are so many people, whether they're essential workers or people who are just in more at-risk communities or people who are having a hard time with this or have lost family members, etc., right? Like, this goes on. Um, it is, it's a really hard situation that is taxing a lot of people and bringing the best out of a lot of people. A lot of people are working really hard. And we get a lot of people having that feeling. Right. Of like ambivalence being like and in the midst of all of this, like how does football fit in? What right do I have to enjoy football? You know, like there's no right or wrong way to think. But everyone to some degree or another has some degree of feelings one way or another. We're just saying, you know, we totally get it. Here's an opportunity um, to to kind of use this for us to come together as fans and right and and make a, a really positive impact. And and Scuzz put in, you know, awesome work. Um to, to highlight this particular group, Soul and Smoke, um, who are doing awesome work. And yeah, you know, please join us in, in reaching out and supporting them. So that being said, um, let's talk a little bit about the rest of the Big Ten uh, this, this past weekend. Um, some definite surprises. Uh, you know, I, I think we should probably start. What were were there any surprises though? I mean, well, there so surprises to many. I I think you know, I, my biggest surprise was you know we weren't sure about Graham Mertz up at Wisconsin. Um, True. I, I I you know for me that that's probably the biggest surprise with you know twenty of twenty one, two hundred and forty eight yards, five touchdowns, 
possibly yeah, that was, that... Ha- possibly has COVID. We're not sure at this point, but uh... <laughs> how, how quick that record turned. Yeah, that is that. You're right, though, Sam. That was um, I, I like. I guess we expected a drop off from the seasoned Jack Cone to the unseasoned Graham Mertz, and there was zero drop off, and that's. Um, that's impressive. Uh, Mertz might even be better than Cone when it's all said and done. I don't know, but um, but yeah, we did we did pretty good otherwise. I, I mean, I our prognostication. If, I mean, it's like if you ask me what the most surprising thing that happened of all of the Big Ten slate, it's Michigan State Rutgers, and it's not close. Yeah, um, I feel like we had everything else pretty well pegged, and Michigan State Rutgers only looks crazy until you look at the box score like we're guilty of underestimating just how much of a tire fire michigan state is right now i guess i mean rutgers well, there's a lot of turnovers in that game I and mean, we oh, talked a lot about michigan state being a tire fire in the offseason yeah and, i mean and... I, I mean rutgers only beat only won by 11 against a team that turned it over seven times five lost fumbles out of six total fumbles and we've talked about like, just how unlucky that is yeah i mean if you look at rutgers numbers in the game they did not play well they played like rutgers but the other team turned it over seven times <laughs> they played like rutgers I mean, I mean and you know it's like greg shiano's crying after the game and everything like i'm not taking it away rutgers Beating Michigan State is a really big deal for Rutgers. I mean, they they put up they put up thirty eight points, which is more than they put up in like again, a season in the Big I Ten mean, play. Again, but it's like do not read a heck of a lot into this. I'll tell you this: it the, certainly the, makes there's there's a reason that we all got really excited a few weeks back when the schedule came out and we saw that our crossovers were Michigan State and Maryland. There's, I mean. A lot of our excitement about this team is derived from that very, very specific fact. Right. And now everybody can see why yep. we right. were excited. Right. And I mean, like, we, I mean, look, none of us are ever going to give back the fact that we got to play Maryland in week one of the Big Ten season. Fantastic. That was fantastic. But we were all kind of licking our chops at Michigan State being the starter in the original slate for exactly this reason. Because we were like, there's a chance they don't know what the hell they're doing right now. And that's exactly what's going on there. They're just a mess. And, um, and I mean, it's, it's quite possible that Maryland and Michigan State are the basement of the conference, which is a heck of a benefit for Rutgers. Two conference wins, things are looking up. But, uh, <laughs> but beyond that, let's not read too much into this from Rutgers' perspective. But, that, but again, and that's the most surprising thing. Because, yeah, we had the rest of this pegged. So Degrees, degrees of excitement aside. So Nebraska scores first against Ohio State, and you know I, <laughs> I was never no, concerned. of course no one was ever concerned, but I definitely Poking saw the... I saw Twitter like start to explode, like oh my god, Nebraska, like settle down, people. This is Ohio State. The, the, this is, this is... The, the Ohio State defense is not the thing that is is uh, that is putting them at number one in you know various uh, ranking systems, et cetera, right now. Well, and I mean. It's not that they're bad. Like, after Nebraska scored that point, those points, they scored 10 more points the rest of the game. So it's like, it's, both of these teams remembered who they were relatively quickly in this one. And, uh, and you know, it's one of those things where it's like the, the fact that Ohio State 
and it's one of those things when Nebraska joined the conference, I don't think many people thought that Ohio State would just be regularly taking Nebraska behind the woodshed and it, no one would even buy it bad an eyelash. It's like, yeah, that's typical. It's what we thought was going to happen. So, yeah, moving the, on. The, there was a moment in this game. So I, I would I had been, you know, bouncing around with the kids, et cetera, and I pulled up the box score and saw that um, Adrian Peterson had nine or Adrian Martinez had nine carries at that point, And it was relatively early in the game. And I thought, Ooh, that's, this is, I mean, this is a recipe for him getting hurt again, which is what happens every year. And I, I was mid text to you guys. Like, it seems like, like Adrian Peterson is running the ball a lot. And this is probably a recipe for disaster. And on the 10th run, he needed the ball out of his own hands and into an Ohio state player's hands who returned it for a touchdown. And need I say more? Yep. Uh, Indiana beats Penn State. Um, you know, we were, very interesting game. Um, just, you know, this could have gone Penn State's way like three different ways. Um, In- interesting. <laughs> oh, my God. You're underselling it. <laughs> so Penn State could have just, you know, they, they have the ball late. They're up. They just fall down on the two-yard line, run the clock out, and the game is over. Oh, but I, they score. I must, I must grab the microphone. Please do. At this Take point. it. Uh, if you've watched Penn State football in the past five years, you know that they won games against Iowa and App State, where for Penn State to lose, all that had to happen was for Akram Wadley and the Appalachian State running back to fall down on the ground. This is what's called karma. Yeah. <laughs> All things come around. Uh, and it's like, if, and that's the thing. It's like, I, I get that there is theoretical controversy involved in the last play of this game. All I want to focus, all, all I want to think about is that Penn State had this coming and that Michael Penix made as amazing of a play on the last play of this game as I've ever seen in a college football game. I, like just looking looking at that replay and focusing on the ball, I just want to be focusing on him being like, I cannot believe he was able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much more to add. That was just a wild, wild finish. I, I saw a pretty cool stat. So um, Penn State outgained Indiana uh, 488 yards to 211 yards the only other team the only other time that a team has outgained the other team to that degree and lost was oregon against indiana in like 2009 that is i mean that is crazy and what was weird about that game though and i mean this is why penn state good luck against ohio state next week because there's this narrative that penn state lost because they turned the ball over a bunch early on and this game did not have the feel of that because mainly that disparity was and again to be kind to a guy who will live in indiana lore he'll be 80 years old getting free drinks at the bar for that play Penix couldn't hit the broadside of a bard for a lot of this game and 19 of 36 for 170 yards one touchdown one pick and that's, yeah, that's weighted. Rough. That's weighted with his unbelievable performance in the last two minutes of the game when he suddenly like was hitting everybody. 
But that's where the disparity in the yardage comes from. It's not like Penn State was lighting the world on fire offensively. And not only that, they were making, yes, horrible turnovers, but they were also missing field goals. I mean, it was like Penn State's offense was just generally kind of a mess. And Kurt Chiraka, I was honestly expecting a heck of a lot more from him because I saw some what seemed to be pretty uninspired play calling and some pretty vanilla stuff. And we told you Indiana kind of occupies, they're the only occupant of this spot in the Big Ten where they are neither good nor bad on defense. They are adequate. They're like the only defense in the conference that fits that. And because they're adequate and they have a potentially great offense, they're a quite good football team. And they, so which is another way of saying like Penn State's going to face a lot of defenses better than Indiana this year. Um, And I took a lot of that to be like, look, this wasn't like the team that was rolling Indiana and turned it over. No, Penn State's got some problems. Um, And had it not been for that one kind of just backbreaking play that Indiana let a guy get behind coverage late in the game, Indiana wins this one going away. Um, So as it was, though, I mean, I I take nothing away. I mean, this has to be the greatest game in Indiana football history. Um, There's not an Indiana fan who won't be telling their grandkids about this game. And yeah, I know. How many of them will say that they were there, though? Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) They'll all be part. They'll all be part. They'll be like, oh, no, no. Yeah, I'm actually so-and-so's third cousin. So I got a family pass to that game. I was, uh, yeah. John, you you did call it on our pod last week, the game of the week. And it certainly was. And we, I mean, we all thought that Indiana had a shot. It's, it's wild that both teams had like legit expectation to win this game in regulation. And then, um, things transpired the way they did and it just but but like here's what i'm excited about northwestern doesn't have to play either one of them yeah i and at least at least not in the first eight weeks of the season right and i mean michigan and uh you know indiana they get rutgers still they get michigan state still they get maryland still like i mean they're this is going to be a promising season um and that 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 date they have with Michigan in two weeks, it could quite could be a really interesting game. Speaking of Michigan, Speaking of. Um, <laughs> Michigan forty nine, Minnesota twenty four. I mean, come on! Like we Ooh, uh. we've been talking. We if this is a surprise to you, you have not been listening to us. Hey, so, so we we talked about how Minnesota has a decent offense, and look, Muhammad Ibrahim ran. For 140 yards, he averaged over five or carry. He got two TDs. He had one awesome TD carry um, to to I think cut it to a one a one score game in the second hey, quarter, maybe. Hey, Sc- um, hey, Scuzz, can I ask you? Um, it says here that Hassan Haskins uh, ran for 13.7 yards a carry, and Zach and Zach Charbonnet <laughs> ran for 17.5 yards a carry. I just assumed from that those two guys must bo- must both be like. 180 pound burners who did it around the end with speed, right? That, that must oh be my god, was. Minnesota's defense is a total train wreck. Um, I, I assume like, they're both about. I assume con- they're both like 175 pound speed guys, right? That's what. No, no, they're not. Um, that's the conundrum because, like I mentioned, Ibrahim or Ibrahim, uh, Rashad Bateman caught 100 yards on nine on nine balls. Like Tanner Morgan was not phenomenal by any stretch, but. Um, but my God, the Minnesota defense is awful. Yeah, and that's the thing. It like we hammered this home, 
that Minnesota is going to be playing track meet football. And right, it's like it's the kind of thing where it's like Bakeman had a good game, Ibrahim had a good game, Morgan had an okay game, but okay ain't going to get it done for this team. Like they need to score thirty five points a game because they're going to get shelled. Um, and Michigan, yes, is a really strong team in the trenches, but. Their top two running backs averaged about 16 yards a carry in this game. And they're both 220-pound wrecking balls who just ran well, forward. Well, let's let's be clear. Zach Charbonnet carried the ball four times for 70 yards, and his longest carry was 70 yards. <laughs> True. Yes. Let's, some real back padding for, for the defense there. <laughs> so, like, I mean, like... One out of four, I mean, one out of three out of four ain't bad. Is that, the, is yeah, that what we should be saying yeah. about the Minnesota defense? So, like, the other thing that's interesting to me here, and this is, so we weren't playing Michigan, so I didn't, I, I didn't probably didn't put forth the effort that I normally would for an opponent, but like Joe Milton was really good as the QB for Minnesota. Now, his, his stats are relatively pedestrian, much like um, uh, Peyton Ramsey's were. He was 15 of 22 for 225 yards. One TD, he did carry the ball eight times for 52 yards and a touchdown. I, like, I saw this dude was going to be the starter at Michigan, and I just kind of like, oh, another big statuesque pro-style QB at Michigan. I Like, we've seen this story before. Like, I don't, I don't know that it's going to go fine. Nobody told me that he was, like, kind of like Jalen Hurts light. Like, he's not as fast as Jalen Hurts, but... um this dude is not just a big pro style QB. He is a imposing pro style QB who can also run the ball. And um, you think about Josh Gaddis coming from, from Alabama um, from that offense, he was running with Jalen hurts and Milton makes all the sense in the world here. Uh, a guy that can attack. Um, he, I don't, I don't think he's really a true, a true dual threat, but much like Ramsey can can carve a defense up with his legs if you if you lose can contain or forget about him and I just like Michigan looked competent on offense for the first time in a long time against a decent opponent. Now that being said, we we know Minnesota's defense has a lot of holes, so like this might be one of those things where Michigan, you know, I forget who they're playing next week, but oh, they're playing Michigan Mich- State. Michigan yeah. State. So well, like same probably same thing again, but um. I mean, we'll see once they get into into the. I, I guess in four weeks they play Wisconsin. That'll be the the really big test. But they look to be um, much revitalized and probably the the number two team in the East. Yeah, and it's like, and for the Gophers, I mean, they've got Maryland and Illinois on deck. Like that'll be that ought to be the cure for what yeah, ails they'll, them. They'll get, they'll get right. Um, and they're and again, it's like their offense is great. Like and showed out in this game. Ibrahim and Bateman, they're exactly what you thought they would be, but. This is, but, t- but it's all, but it's all they have, right? So and that's I, the after thing. It, after Bateman, Chris Ottman Bell caught one ball. It, it was a right. forty-five yard pass, but he caught one ball, and then and then nothing. Right? Coquif caught two. Ibrahim caught four. Like they do, like, and this, this is not last year's Minnesota team where they were. They had you know solid skill, solid starting skill position players, and some depth at running back, and then basically nobody got hurt. Right, and that is not the world that the Gophers are living in this year. Exactly, and based on Week One, Iowa, Purdue, Wisconsin, and Northwestern have every right to believe that they're going to be able to run for big yards against the Gophers. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's like Minnesota's the, the short of it is they are who we thought they were. Like they're not bad. They're they got a really solid offense, but. A team with a good offense is going to smoke them. 
So let's talk about this upcoming weekend's games um, briefly. I know we're uh, running a little long tonight. But uh, starting off on Friday, uh, Minnesota at Maryland. Minnesota, 21.5 point favorite uh, Friday night on ESPN in uh, at College Park. Ibrahim's I, I, going to run for 200. Yeah. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're they're going to pound Maryland. And again, it's it's now on one hand, you know, Tagovailoa, this should be an easier route for him. They, you know, they should have a, he should have a chance to get True. something, get something going to a better degree. But yes, on the other hand, they're going to get gashed up the middle. Uh, but I, I was surprised that Maryland didn't run Boone Penny against us more. So they have two highly rated freshman recruits. Um, one being Isaiah Jacobs, who, who did carry the ball against us to, to like a no effect. Um, younger brother of Josh Jacobs in the NFL with the Raiders. And then, Penny Boone, who's like a 245 pound um, behemoth, and he he certainly seemed to be able to get to get some yards um, toward the end of the game. Granted, that was our second string, but I would not be surprised. I mean, they started Jake, Jake Funk, which in our preview last week I thought was very very weird. I, yes, he's a senior, but he's got two ACL replacements. Right, I I think that against Minnesota, they'll really explore the um, the depths of their running back stable and see what they've got there. On Saturday, Michigan State at Michigan. Michigan, a 26-and-a-half-point favorite. It, Lord. I know. I mean, it's it's one of those things where does the fact that Michigan is clearly better than Michigan State. Um, in the D'Antonia era, that meant nothing. Michigan State still won the game most of the time. Um, but right now, it feels like Michigan and Michigan State are, are on very very different levels. I mean, I think Michigan State, you know, it's that Michigan State Maryland game eventually may just determine the worst team in in the West. I mean, suddenly Michigan State finds East. Suddenly Michigan State finds themselves in big trouble. Michigan won forty four to ten last year, and they've won um, two in a row and three of the last four. And I expect it to be just as bad as last year. Uh, Purdue at Illinois. Purdue is seven and a half point favorite. Also at eleven o'clock. God, if if Purdue is healthy now, Grant, I don't think. Um, I assume that uh, Coach Brome will still be in maybe COVID maybe. protocol. Um, the coaches. I guess it depends if he's symptomatic. Yeah. Or not. Well, I think it's the coaches have a different. Um, like they don't have the twenty-one day uh, policy. The coaches just have to follow the CDC guidelines. So I believe it's ten days. Of isolation, which uh, would put him would theoretically put him back if he's not if he's asymptomatic or uh, has negative tests. I believe that puts him back some point midweek. Okay, but okay. I'm, I, but I'm not I'm not days, I'm not 100 percent on that. Yeah, we'll see. But if so, nobody knows why Rondell Moore couldn't di- couldn't or didn't play um, last game, and um, David Bell was unstoppable. So. Um, Let's put it this way. Everything Purdue could do against Iowa offensively, they can do against Illinois offensively. This is, this is such a giant mismatch week in the, in the big 10 with the exception of, of our game and the night game. Well, maybe, (laughs) uh, two 30 on FS one, Wisconsin at Nebraska. (laughs) Sorry, it took me a second there. Like, yes, John, there's a giant maybe there. Yeah. So um, Wisconsin, as we record this, uh, 
Sunday night at 10.30 Central. Uh, Wisconsin, an eight-and-a-half-point favorite. Um, I did mention earlier the possible positive COVID test for Graham Mertz. Um, nothing has been announced formally. Uh, but but Ve- Vegas has announced it, though. <laughs> well, eight. what I, 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 didn't see a, I didn't see the line before the news came out. If it if it was I mean I it, in my book this should be Wisconsin should win by twenty one or more more points in this game I just it's what so whatever uh, Wisconsin's gonna do on offense let's say Mertz is out right um, their third string quarterback will be more than serviceable against this team and more than likely they're just going to try to pound on the ground, which they absolutely can do to Nebraska, however they want to. And on offense, what in God's name is Nebraska going to do against this defense? Um, It's the best defense Nebraska will face all year. Respect to us and our own good defense. Wisconsin's going to annihilate this offense. Um, And then what? Like what Nebraska's going to win with defense? No. Uh, this game, I, 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 again, that feels like one of those reactive things um, to suddenly, oh my gosh, Wisconsin lost their unbelievable quarterback, and I get it. But these are totally different classes of football team. Yeah, I, there, I mean, we said at the beginning of the year that like not not much matters for Wisconsin the way that they're built. Um, losing Jack Cohn was a problem, and then they erased that. So Chase Wolf is the is the backup to Graham Mertz. Uh, Chase Wolf was a three-star pro-style QB out of Cincinnati, which apparently is just a hotbed for starting uh, QBs in the Big Ten because he spent the majority of his high school career backing up Sean Clifford, the starting quarterback at Penn State. Um, started his senior year, had offers from, interesting offer list, had, an, had a Florida offer. Um, Boston College, Cincinnati, Maryland, Iowa State, Pitt, South Carolina, um, so I mean, like, seems like a reasonable guy, but he's gonna he's gonna slot in and hand off a lot, and we'll see what happens. Um, interestingly, Wisconsin didn't run the ball all that great against Illinois. Um, they didn't really need to uh, because they just torched them through the air with with Mertz. But um, and their and their defense, like I like I I think it comes back to their defense. Wisconsin's defense is just so good that unless you're a legit team, which I don't believe Nebraska is, um, you're going to struggle. 2.30 Central on Big Ten Network, Indiana at Rutgers. No line on here for reasons I don't know. That is weird. Um, yeah, what would they be waiting on? I'm not sure. But, I, I mean, I Indiana, all the points. Um, Rutgers, again, like they ain't getting seven turnovers against Indiana. And Indiana's, let's be honest, a really good football team. Penix has some issues. He's hot and cold for sure. But he was also playing against the Penn State defense in that game. This is the Rutgers defense. Um, uh, I mean, like Rutgers ain't got no one that can stay with Wap Fillior. Like they just, <laughs> that's, it's it's not close. Um, so, but. The line I have is Indiana minus twelve. Okay, that seems what I'm seeing. slightly conservative, but fair. Um, I, I, I think Indiana is going to show out in this game. And then uh, national game on ABC: Ohio State, Penn State, uh, in a very empty Beaver Beaver Stadium on Halloween. 
what would have been guaranteed to be the whiteout game. Um, yeah, Ohio State's a 13-and-a-half-point favorite here. I, I'd take the Buckeyes. I, I, they're, they're just head and shoulders above everyone in the Big Ten. I mean, that's what we talked about all summer. It's what everybody's expectation was. Penn State lost two of their best five players. Um, like, let's say Penn State doesn't turn the ball over at all against Indiana and beats them um, – 35 to 17 like do you feel any different about them going into this into this Ohio State matchup nope. I don't No, I just didn't see anything inspiring like I don't feel like Penn State has impact players game breakers on either side of the ball like they're capable of being very solid um, I don't think they're in Michigan's class they're certainly not in Wisconsin's class and Ohio State is just in a, in a whole other league um, so I mean it's crazy I mean I think you know Mike, there's there's a parallel universe where there's no COVID and they have Micah Parsons still and it's a crazy whiteout and this is like right to your point like that's it's a totally different environment and then maybe but this is not that world um, and Ohio State is is just on a, a whole other level than than Penn State. Uh, normally this is the point where we talk about uh, some of the big games around the country. I just did a quick scan through. Nothing really is jumping out at me as like something that we have to talk about. And uh, we're running a little long tonight. So what do you say we we forego that and go back to just celebrating Northwestern and a 43-3 to win over Maryland and just feel good about this Cats team and what the possibilities are for this year? And lest we forget, 100 career victories for Pat Fitzgerald as head coach of the Cats. I mean, congratulations to him. Um you know, he'll, I love what, he'll be the first I, I to say it should have happened a long time ago. Well, and he and he did when they interviewed him. He apologized for for it not happening um, sooner. And, I don't, and he and he wasn't flipping about it either. Um, it, it seemed to be like a like a, not like he was you know not like he actually felt bad about it. I'm sure he sleeps pretty well at night, but um, like an acknowledgement that they've you know left some on the table as it were. Um, but then also in response to being asked about it and how it feels and such, like pulled out the list of all of his captains over yeah, the years that was so and, cool. uh, and talked about his players. And that's, that's pretty damn cool. And that, that's fits. I mean, that's what he does. He, he doesn't want to take the spotlight for him. He wants to make it about the team. Yep. And again, it's like they're, He's he knows too that I think that he's he's sitting on a hundred wins, but he's also looking at a potentially pretty special season. We were all pretty darn bullish about this season last week, and that didn't exactly change after a forty-three to three win. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I think hundred and, and first of many more. Uh, well, boys, let's go ahead and leave it there for tonight. Uh, head to our website, westlotpirates.com, where you can leave comments and questions. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at westlotpirates. And you can email the show, westlotpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics. And look for us in the west lot of Ryan Field playing the red pirate flag, because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Scasboy, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.